0: Welcome to Startup Simplified, Young. How are you? I'm uh, very well. Great to be here. Awesome, awesome. So you've you come directly from the ASEAN Summit today. Yeah, that's right. How was it? It was great. Meeting a lot of very
1: important people, feeling, feeling nice and inspired. Okay. And lots of diversity. It was, it was really good to see. Awesome, awesome. How long have you been in Jakarta? Actually, not that long, about eight months or so now. Um, I mean, I spent quite a bit of time here in my prior life. Sure. It was in corporate, but living here, you know, spending time, really being in the market, just about eight months.
0: Where do you live in Jakarta? In Bezdi. Uh, nice, 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 nice. How are you finding the place so far?
1: I love Jakarta. I yeah. absolutely love it. Uh, look, I've been in Asia for almost 10 years out. Sure. Done the usual rounds. Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, a bunch of places. Mm-hmm. Um, but i gotta say that jakarta is the place that reminds me of home the most and, and uh, where where is home so i'm brazilian
0: oh you're brazilian
1: I'm okay brazilian and jakarta and sao paulo are like sister cities you know in many ways okay and then yeah. there never done this before why do you say so A big city lots of traffic lots of chaos mm. yeah you have the added element of brazil being dangerous but generally the chaos is there, that positive chaos, right? Sure, sure. Uh, So, I think they're very similar. And once you they're both the economic peaks of the entire area, right? So, as soon as you leave the city, you have this stark difference. You have pockets of wealth, just like you have in Bandung, for instance. Sure. Then you have the cities in the state of Sao Paulo. But beyond that, it very quickly goes rural. And that reminds me of Fulham a lot. Not not even to go down the the, the route of talking about culture and everything, because Again, being here reminds me of home. From a welcoming, you know, just how people like to live their lives. People are generally a little bit more chill, and sure, some sure. of the, the the Western counterpart countries, right? Yeah. So that reminds me of home too.
0: Sweet, sweet, sweet. So, how how did you move to uh, Asia? I mean, just just walk us through your journey. So you grew up uh, in Brazil, and then you moved to Asia. What what was this whole transition like?
1: So I'm. Uh, I don't say. Where my other half is from, because it's not as cool as Brazil, but I'm um, actually half Belgian. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and weirdly enough, nothing to do with my nationality itself. But when I was young, my father's work uh, involved moving to Belgium. Okay. Um, he was opening up a port in Antwerp. And uh, it just turned out that my entire life, I kept bouncing back and forth between Brazil and Belgium every two, three years. So it was Brazil, Belgium, Brazil, Belgium, Brazil. Germany then Belgium okay. and then it was time to go to uni went to the UK so I kind of felt that I had enough of both continents you know I was like sure. okay Europe and up my time this is great um, sure. US was great but I wasn't gonna pay for university there
0: but, uh,
1: so I thought you know what like let me get an, a quick education in the UK and mm-hmm. let me go open up a new frontier sure. so the first opportunity that I had to work for a respected company a company that would teach me things that I wanted to learn and would open doors for that I don't mm-hmm. get and that happened to be uh, one of the world's largest FMCG companies that offered me a role in Shanghai. So this was, yeah, roughly eight, nine years ago. Which company was this? AB Inbe. Woof. So okay. the, the large brewer from 3G Capital. Yeah, yeah as, as large as they get. Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
1: and that was a lot of fun. Look, uh, it, it was dur- during the peak, the heydays of China, digitization, hey, Alibaba, Tencent, biggest consumer market in the world. True. And I was thinking, wow, this is fantastic. So I moved out there. And that was the beginning of my APAC chapter. They offered me opportunities to spend time in India, across Southeast Asia. A lot of work in Southeast Asia. Uh, they sent me to Hong Kong for a couple of years to manage the markets there. Sure. And that bit by bit kind of tipped the dominoes that that brought me to Indonesia, where the at least the center of my world is they...
0: <laughs> Interesting, interesting. So I, I was I was I was having it. I was recording a podcast recently. Uh, with a very good friend and a and a founder, uh, his name is Jimmy. So he operates Kita Lulus, and uh, he was interviewing me, and he asked me this question, which I'm going to ask you. The question is that what hap- What goes wrong with people that they quit everything beautiful in life and want to struggle being an entrepreneur? So is is there is there something in the central circuitry which <laughs> which just goes off? uh so what happened with you
1: yeah look i I like brazilian jiu-jitsu maybe i got choked out too hard one day and (laughs) something went loose uh but on jokes aside uh, i think i think people mature in different ways and different aspects of their life mature uh and i think it all it it is a matter of how that maturity is progressing but also life circumstance Hmm. um the realization for me that i should quit and i should be able, I should drive something new that I should really go out on a limb and and prove a point, really drive something that I believe in. Mm -hmm. It came at a time where I wasn't super young anymore. I had, you know, 10 years experience or so. Um, I had financial resources. I had that comfort and that safety net Mm -hmm. I felt that I also had the knowledge and the ability to connect enough dots to really, you know, have the horsepower to be able to do something. But it was that combination with a few other things, me not having uh, kids and mm-hmm. having a super supportive wife who said you know what let's just do this mm. you know this is gonna be great let's go and try it out. Sure. Uh, and the third thing uh, a moment of being disillusioned by mm. what a linear thread brings to you. Um, I was very focused on becoming CEO of ABM but I wanted that at all costs. I knew that since I was 14. 14? Yeah since I was 14. It's a Brazilian Belgian company I'm a Brazilian Belgian. Since I was 14, I was like, this is what I want. And all the way through to the day that that disillusionment happened, uh, I was 100% convinced of it and what brought about it. It's not necessarily that I was upset with the company or anything like this. (laughs) It's this understanding that it doesn't matter how much your execution can be perfect and how everything that you do lines up perfectly. There are exogenous factors, which make several components of your future be outside of your span of control and I wasn't ready to accept that. I'd rather take this experience, the freedom, the support, and add that, okay, now it's in my own hands to make it happen. When all those factors were aligned, uh, that's when for me it was just a no-brainer. There was absolutely no way that I was going to continue in a thread that wasn't going to allow me to have that control.
0: That sounds good. I mean, look, the, the freedom which, which comes along with uh, entrepreneurship is definitely something which is very, very addictive. Uh, and very appreciative as well, and you can only appreciate it once you taste it. Uh, I agree completely. Uh, but having said this, when you haven't done it, you're a first-time founder, right? This is your fo- yeah. Uh, again, I'm talking from my experience. Please correct me, right? I mean, if you haven't done it before, you really don't know what does this feel like. And then there is this there's this massive cushion all around right? The safety nets, the the usual safety nets, uh, the monthly uh, dopamine, massive dopamine drug dose of salary, uh, which which comes in and then taking a step like this, venturing into entrepreneurship. Generally, what I've seen is that it's either idea driven that uh, uh, an entrepreneur has an idea and the idea was that strong enough that it is, it is, it is. The itch is real, real itch out there. That hey, listen, I want to do this, mm. right? Or there is an individual who is like, okay, I am done with all these, uh, all these corporate shenanigans, and I want to do things on my own, right? I want to become an entrepreneur, and now I'm going to decide what I want to do. Mm. Right. What was it for you? Was it a mix of both, or uh, was it one? I think
1: it, if I could perhaps you know just add on to that idea, I would say it's rather a spectrum than a binary black and white. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. Okay. Um, because in in my case, I'm no. I had the name Basket, the name of my company. I had name Basket in mind since 2017. Okay. I knew that the ideas that I had, the insights that I was gathering about supply chains, I wanted to do something in that space. And I was fantasizing about building a company. But at the same time, I had this perhaps at the time naive, but you know, later I realized that, you know, I'm not so naive, uh, feeling that I could perhaps do it internally, I could steer the company, could steer a massive tanker ship with 300,000 people in it, Mm. in the direction where we could execute those things. And part of the disillusionment, the losing that perspective that look, this can be done internally was one of the bigger trigger for me. Because I had the idea, I knew that I was super passionate about that, and I knew that it could be so transformative for the company. It just took me six years to get to the point where I said, actually, I just need to change the game I'm playing." Oh, let's do it. Exactly.
0: Okay. okay. And
1: then, but the idea was always there. It was always sure. a driver. Sure, sure.
0: So, yeah, I mean, then, then it's a perfect mix of things, right? It's, well, of course, it's not not binary. I agree completely. But even with even with the uh, definition which I was giving, it was a perfect mix of it. Correct. Is it? Right? Nice, nice, nice. Okay. So let's let's talk about basket. Sure. Right. So just just to give an idea to me as well as the viewers, right? In the simplest terms possible. What exactly you guys are doing? We help middlemen in supply chains. Okay. How?
1: So middlemen are kind of the ugly ducklings of the supply chain N- no positive emotions are evoked when you speak of a
0: middleman I mean historically in any business no one really respects it's unfortunate to be honest no one really respects uh, middlemen uh, I mean they are always they're always attributed uh, onto on the long end uh, of things but they do help to keep the system running uh, definitely definitely How do you help them? Yeah, so perhaps on how I help them, let me explain
1: the importance of the middlemen in the supply chain. Sure. So uh, you talk about middlemen in the context of the United States. Okay. So let's talk about the wholesaler system, the distributor wholesaler system in the United States. Okay. The government thought it was so important to modernize them that they created government-mandated tierings for wholesalers whereby manufacturers have to go through layers and layers of these wholesalers. Why? Okay. Because these wholesalers are going to put together the infrastructure. They're going to hire thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Prepare. They are connected to their local communities. They're literally like the hubs of you know supply chain within their area. Sure, so we, sure companies like Amazon and whatnot are a threat to that. Hmm. But in, in some ways, they are so important. The government institutionalized intermediary support. <laughs> uh, in markets like in any emerging market for that matter. But in Indonesia, it's a, it's a particularly um, market example of this. Mm. In supply chains, especially in more traditional supply chains, consumer goods, spare parts, anything of that type, the fragmentation is just humongous. You're talking about north of 80% of products sold by manufacturers depending on an intricate and super chaotic and convoluted chain of intermediaries. Mm-hmm. Those intermediaries are you know, run by... Aunties and uncles that have been doing it for 50, 60 years, sometimes more.
0: Generations,
1: Gen- yeah. Generational. Their kids go to school with the kids of the owners of the shops. Yeah. They're super ingrained in their local communities. Mm-hmm. Now, in if you put that into numbers in Indonesia, it's between one hundred to two hundred thousand wholesalers, depending on how you you define that. Uh, whether it's pretty more pretty sizable, very sizable, two hundred billion dollars. So, right, it's absolutely massive. Hmm. Um, Startups, when they think about supporting the supply chain, usually has something to do with removing those layers.
0: I was about to come to that, uh, but yeah. Why? Yeah, why? I've always been curious why. And they've been trying it for a while, and I don't think anyone, at least in the region, has been successful, apart from the online behemoths, to some extent. To some extent, yeah.
1: But why do you think? We can touch on that later. I think the music hasn't fully stopped in some areas. Um, The the game is still playing out. But the reason why this intermediation is such an attractive proposition is because it's very clear mathematics. Here's the margin pool. Here are the steps. If I take this out and I take this out and I internalize it, magical. I've pocketed this and I think I can do more efficiently Mm. to get to the, the end buyer. Now that sounds beautiful on an Excel spreadsheet or McKinsey, BCG, Bain, PowerPoint. But when it comes out of the drawing board and it actually goes into practice where you have complex human relationships, you have these intergenerational sticky businesses that sure are not very sophisticated and sure are, you know, in some ways, not very prone to adopting technology, it is just extremely difficult for you to want to do that. And even if you're able to do that, the powers that be at the supply chains, the big brands. The big manufacturers, they don't want to rock the bull. They don't want somebody coming in there and saying, Hey, you know, let me kick out a bunch of these guys. Eventually it becomes a problem. Sure. It, it turns the ecosystem upside down and it creates all sorts of issues. So historically what we've seen is that startups that try to disrupt too much, hmm. they get sidelined by the upstream. True. Sure. Or they struggle so much in that, uh, this intermediation process that it becomes an
0: overly expensive uh, venture in the long term. I mean, we've seen this, we've seen this uh, fold out very badly in India as well. There have been a bunch of startups. I mean, there are a lot of experimentation that happen in India, which has been gradually been replicated in Indonesia as well, be it it in terms of again removing these middlemen and going directly, becoming that distributor, which is a centralized distributor of sorts, uh, again playing on the margins. But even there, it has failed to a large extent because the retainer still has those deep relationships with these middlemen, which have been formed over, 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 over decades. Yeah. And they just don't care about that incremental benefit, which you are giving as a platform. Uh, they're like, no, I mean, this is too important. Uh, we will we'll stick to this. Uh, But yeah, okay. There are more things. Yeah, okay.
1: And this is a very interesting point. And I think uh, this is actually, it spreads across broader uh, venture than just supply chains. Okay. Uh, I think one of the biggest missteps that startups uh, make is they fail to understand that there are are costs that they are assuming as part of their business model Mm -hmm. that were not costs before. give me an example so that calculation i said oh if i pocket this margin and this margin and i do more efficiently Hmm. then i can grab this margin what is being underappreciated here is that this guy is literally paying you know sharing a motorist with seven other intermediaries yep that is their like cousin you know not even sure if it's a it's his uh, working age right correct secondly these guys have how many books they have Three different books and they're managing taxes very wisely Mm. third a lot of the purchasing it's called supply chain because it's supply driven it gets to a final node of distribution and then a lot of times the demand comes to it so a lot of the retailers actually pick up some of these intermediaries. true, sure. And that dynamic is seen all over the world with the cash and carries. Hmm. Now, if we build a startup and we say, oh, well, no, we're just gonna do the deliveries. Mm-hmm. How much more costs have you now eaten up as a result of you saying, I'm going to do this because I've mapped it and this is how the supply chain works. So net-net, you are actually being much less efficient than what an intermediary would have been by virtue of the costs that you have to put on yourself as an official company that pays
0: taxes. Mm-hmm. That is basically providing the full end-to-end service. Do you think these are cases of uh, having lazy business models because of easy money? I think it's twofold. I think a lot of money prompts models
1: that create opportunities for these uh, drawing board business models to be created. I do think that that's the case. That's why you have vanity vanity metrics-driven business models that are perpetuated every bull cycle. Uh, I do think as well that it's uh, it happens in markets or it happens in sectors where something really exciting is happening and we're just like, oh wow, retail digitization, that's amazing. Yeah. Or in fintech, oh my gosh, like all these great things. But the core infrastructure in the back is not ready. Like for instance, in financial infrastructure, there's a lot of infra that is not yet Correct. built. And supply chains, a lot of the supply chain is not digitized. Yep. So once you combine a drawing board business model with a sector that is still nascent in its digital journey, you you have the situation where the entirety of a business model is an impossibility from the get-go. Mm. And I, one of the major reasons why actually my journey to becoming a founder was accelerated is that I started to see this a lot. And in some cases, some of the business models that I observed were a direct kind of, you know, punch in the guts for me because it was against what I truly believe needed to be the right way to approach Yeah,
0: um, I, I, I think I understand where, which, which ones you're talking about. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard quite a few uh, businesses which are around this, removing the middlemen. And so far, what they have successfully done is uh, that they have successfully redistributed venture capital wealth uh, amongst a lot of retailers. Uh, but didn't really go anywhere further than that because the retailers were very thankful for the wealth redistribution, but then not every voucher code is going to buy you a customer. Uh, It's not going to buy you loyalty, especially in these businesses. These are long established working relationships. So yeah, I mean, I am with you on that point. Now, how are you helping these middlemen? What are you doing for them? So one individual middleman not that big. Yes. Let's say, you
1: know, our average customer does three to five billion per month in turnover, which again, it's it's sizable Yeah, yeah, but yeah. these are they they're bulk buyers and bulk breakers. Yeah. Um. So one of them is not going to make a dent for a large manufacturer. The manufacturers they know that they have thousands of these guys in their ecosystem anyway. But if you're able to orchestrate dozens, hundreds thousands of these wholesalers Mm -hmm. and you provide inventory visibility, you make them a little bit more efficient in how they manage that little warehouse or that little truck that they're owned. You give them opportunities to source adequately, but also connect to stores or connect to new revenue opportunities that they might not have had. All of a sudden you've created cohorts of some of the best intermediaries in the country. Mm -hmm. And if you have something that can orchestrate thousands of the best intermediaries in the country. You've basically owned a very critical layer of the supply chain. So, so this is, this is the, the, the value proposition for the upstream. And the reason why that's important is because nothing makes sense in the supply chain, unless you are able to orchestrate and harmonize the ambitions of all the players, so if I'm able to orchestrate these guys and bring their visibility and make them really good intermediaries, I'm the friend of the brands. And this is the first big check mark that. Anybody needs to be able to say that my business model is conducive for me to work with any brand principle and then provide value to my core customers and at the same time be able to survive so I'm not blacklisted, I'm not pushed aside by again doing things that would would go against the brand's interest. Now, what do I... Go ahead.
0: Just just a very, very quick question. So would would it be fair to assume that you're you're building this... Massive ERP system, centralized ERP system. It's a you can ERP has a very bad connotation to it. Okay, but now, but look, it's fine. It's, it's actually not no. I, I'm just curious. I, I really don't know. I am not FMCG person. I don't know supply chain. So, uh, and I think a lot of people don't right. So the whole idea is to that let's let's just simplify it. Let I want everyone to understand. Sure. Right. Uh, what what are you doing? Why you're doing? Right. We'll come to the why's as well. But let's understand first what. Sure.
1: So what I do is I go to uh, an intermediary and I help him sell more. I help him be a better product pusher. Okay. And how I do that is I connect him with better opportunities or more opportunities in the downstream. Basically, in mm-hmm. more retailers, uh, more semi-wholesalers that are buying bulk Sure. At the same time, I help him source. Okay. I help him work with for the ecosystem. And the only way that I do that is if I have very good inventory visibility into him, sure. and I make sure that he has enough capital to be able to turn that inventory buy and sell that inventory. Interesting. So that I okay. connect him through uh, APIs, through financing partners, sure. uh, into folks who had never been able to bank or finance this, this layer of the supply chain. Now they have access to all of
0: these SMEs That can be maxing out the loan limit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because now you have the data. You know how much inventory they're holding or how much inventory they have been pushing out. So it's easier to lend them as well. Correct. For the first time, they are underwritable. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, now it makes perfect sense. Now it makes perfect sense. Now uh, the question is, have you already started doing this? Or are you building it? It's already been going on since December. Very nice. And how's, house being the overall, uh, feedback? Oh, uh, I mean, because I'm pretty sure it's going to be built over a period of time. Right. I mean, for, I mean, even me as, as an entrepreneur, there are a lot of things which I have in my head in terms of product roadmap. And then you figure out that, okay, you no, know, the users want something else. Sure. And you try to, uh, just make sure that you're reaching in the right point. Uh, how's that journey going for you? So. Like I
1: said, I haven't had the name of the company in my head for like many, many years, Good. Right? So it's been a really long process of figuring out dynamics and just thinking through. So when we started in December, the execution was really, really fast. We already had a team, right? So hmm. December was when we commercialized for, for the first time. Hmm. And since December, uh, things have moved really quickly. So we went from zero to, you know, close to hundred plus, uh, we're crossing hundred this month now in terms of. Wholesalers on our platform, well, okay, Uh, well, and with that came numbers, with that came funding, with that came a lot of things. But one thing that I wanted to highlight is that when we started, Hmm. actually, you know, if you speak, if you talk to some of the investors that we pitched almost a year ago, now when we were first trying to raise money, but like around Q3 of last year, Hmm. uh, we were our narrative was very ERP-like. Actually, the first customers that we wanted to do testing with, Hmm. it was much more of a tech-first play. And then the customers slapped us in the face so hard and they said, look, man,
0: I don't need that." To be honest, when we started this conversation, even I felt that, hence I wanted, because I'm like, no, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But when you simplify it, then you figure out that there are a lot of moving parts which come together. All right. Which come together to build this cycle of sorts, which you can easily visualize is missing. Yeah. Then it makes a lot more sense. But yeah, talk talk to me about these slappings which you got in terms of corrections uh, from from VCs.
1: Yeah, so it wasn't just a VC. So VCs at the beginning, I had the backing of some pretty important FMCG leaders, right? So uh, FMCG consumer goods CEOs and whatnot. So they were like, maybe he's onto something, and we really were because what we were building was something that the brands have always wanted to kind of do. Correct, but. At at individual level. At individual level, they wanted to do it. Correct. Yeah. But then again, it, that, that's also the reason why their individual platforms, they tend to fail yes. because they are a little bit biased and because they're not thinking about the customer's expectations so much. So a, a lot of my expectations about the world were formed on the back of all of this experience that I had. So when I first started, I started to have customer interviews mm. and we went to do the first initial testings. It's almost like, oh, my... my, my blinders went, went off, right? Mm-hmm. And then I said, well, wow, like actually there are so many assumptions and misconceptions that we brought to our initial product. True. And that's when we had to steer. We had to really think, okay, being a SaaS company is probably not going to work in Indonesia. Mm. Uh, you know, bringing technology as a core value prop is actually probably not going to work. So how do we get around those things mm. and how do we get our foot in the door with the customer mm. and then over time show him the value of technology? True. That's exactly it. The only way to do it is you drive revenue you make a friend, them to trust you, Kere. and then over time, and in, and this is something that I learned about the Indonesian culture as well. Once you are in the circle, once they trust you, they are sometimes even irrationally willing to share a piece of the pie. Correct. I was never acutely aware of that until the point where that became the make or break for our business. Sure. And that's what we're ripping today. Um, but look the investors were also fundamental in the process I think we got rejected by more than like 100 VCs so we're
0: but that's a good start that's an absolutely great start I believe I mean you just just hypothetically let's just imagine that okay the second or the third venture capital whom you met give cut you out a check for example yeah. just let's just take an assumption that here's here's a million or half a million go start building you would have built something else altogether something which you probably would regret now with the experience which you have so in the hindsight i i feel it was it was it was pretty good it was great it was great i'm also hard headed Sure. and let's
1: say that i will learn by repetition hmm. uh, so when i was looking for a job my first job even as even though i had an offer on the table uh, I still was interviewing with you know, 20, 30 different companies. I hadn't signed yet, so it was not on the end. Under- yeah, sure, sure. Because I knew I wanted to be damn good mm-hmm. at doing interviews, and that would mm-hmm. serve me for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. So when I was going through this kind of PC pitching exercise, sometimes I completely bombed it. It was <laughs> like, you know, like they would shut the meeting down within like 15 minutes. So, 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 But that was so important for me, mm-hmm. you know, understanding the animal spirits, understanding mm-hmm. how people... Raise businesses, hmm. the the language, the the things that make them tick. I think it served me super well, so I'm really glad I went through that, and hmm. I got a lot of data points about everything else.
0: So I am I'm sure definitely. Let's sure. start. <laughs> okay, let's let's talk about let's talk about fundraising, uh, especially in this market. When did you raise your first first money? There is the perpetual raise, right? Perpetual raise or okay. cash raise? I so want when... that. That's what I've been hearing, but yeah, I, did, I and I agree as well. Okay. Uh, actually, the the beginning for us was friends and family. So
1: okay. you know, I've always been very focused on mentors and you mm-hmm. know people that I've carried on my entire life as uh, folks that I respect. And then I felt actually the ABMF CEO is somebody that I had as a mentor since you know even before when I was like sixteen or something like this. True. Um, so for me, the big point that marked our fundraising journey. So I flew to New York. Uh, I think it was September. Of uh, last year, and I went to see him, the former CEO of ABM. and I said, Carlos Brito, I want to, uh, I want to get your money in. You've been mentoring me my entire life. I really want to. This is this will be important for me. So he put the. It was a small, very small check, but you know he put money in. It's a validation. It was a validation. It's a validation. And then a couple more folks started to put money in. And then, you know, it started to be that thing, you know, hmm. um, 50K, 100K here.
0: What's a trickle? It was a trickle. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: And it trickled a couple hundred thousand dollars, etc. cetera. Uh, then I started to, I already had bombed 100 VC, <laughs> <laughs> So now I was like, okay, let me continue with some VCs. Then December came around, revenue started to trickle in. Yeah. And then some of the VCs that we had been talking to that had kind of been a little bit dormant, they kind of propped up and they are
0: oh, it's on there. I like oh, you got revenue. Let's talk.
1: You've <laughs> got revenue. Let's talk. Exactly. Come on. I revenue. Yeah. Oh, man. They didn't care about the funding that I already had or the, who, who the people were. So they were like, oh, you got this. is cool. And then January started to come around. They're like, actually, the traction is really good on this. And so between the end of December and the beginning of January, that's when we got our first VC and institution. institution. Who were they? Forge. Oh, nice. space. Okay. They've been amazing. So nothing, nothing really, only amazing things to say. And, you know, I always believed that what I needed was somebody, you know, one institution to believe in me. And that was right. That was one of the biggest learnings for me during that time. The moment that they believed in me, and then I had advice, I had structure, I had a little bit more governance, true uh, and I had the validation now, true. it completely changed the game for us over the course of the next six, seven months. Then we ended up raising another almost $5 million within Basically, six months. So.
0: Which is unheard of in this market. This macroeconomic. Uh, okay. Uh, you mentioned something which which I want to expand further upon is governance. Mm. Uh, governance, which is something which wasn't heard of very frequently in the last few years, uh, especially in the startup space, but has become very prominent in the last year, year and a half. Uh, we hear it quite Quite often, what do you think? What do you think was missing earlier, which is now being pushed by the VCs that even at pre-seed stage or seed stage, uh, they they want certain basics to be clearly out there, uh, written, applied, executed. Sure. What are your thoughts on this in the first place? Because it's it's a very volatile environment, right? Most of the times uh, in startups, I mean, things, uh, there are constant experiments going on. Uh, you can't really follow the process every time. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? So, during good times
1: with excess cash available, it's just, it, it's only natural that they're going to want to deploy. Correct. Right? Incentives for VCs and for startups are aligned. Sure. Startups want money so they can pay things. They to need to expand and mm. you know give it give it their moonshot mm. uh nbc's they want to raise the next fund. they want mm. the management fees they want carry they want all those things they want to pass the hot potato and that's that's the game that is played And one status there there is this almost like moral hazard of, yeah we must you know it, it, it's okay it's okay the, not everything is there but it's enough you know yeah. trust-based deals you know, partner-driven deals, all those things happen a lot. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's a product of the times, and it will continue to happen. It's not the last time, you know, the next time will continue to repeat itself. And then we're almost at the other extreme now where, you know, the focus has shifted to hard assets, profitability, extreme levels of diligence for any deal that is made. And I think it's not just because that's the information that they need to make a decision. It's also the information that they need to be able to cover for the future because sure. you know, they have a few more deals that bomb you right. know they need to basically have ticked all the boxes and that type of diligence on the investor side is
0: it has unintended consequences how is it affecting you as a founder or like in general Not let's not per se say you but what, what are your thoughts in general How how is it affecting uh, the founders like I, I'll give you one example yeah. like for us uh, at Kirtatik we are about to close our pre-seed round mm. uh, And when the audits were done oh. Well, there are audits happening for pre-seed round, guys uh, oh, wow. yeah, uh, the audit When the audit was done and uh, they came back with a few Typhoon, very few uh, uh, queries That is because we are pre-revenue right now They came back with a few queries and uh, the queries were very legal in nature, right? Like the safe notes which you have signed already from your angels, It does not have this clause. Uh, Why this? Why that? I'm like, okay. Okay. I mean, it's very small round. We are pre-revenue. I can't really even afford lawyers right now, to be honest. Lawyers are expensive. (laughs) Yeah. I can't really afford even that. Uh, But what I figured out uh, is that if from the very beginning, we are able to keep our books clean, If you're able to keep our documents clean, it is going to serve us in the long run. For sure, I agree completely. But it is too much at at this earlier stage, right? Now, you are at a slightly different stage. You are post-revenue. And you are actually having uh, legal obligations to multiple parties, right? Brand side, retailer, uh, a lot more, right? So governance probably for you is very different. But again, at the same time, it's very really difficult at the very early stage, right? So what are your thoughts? How do you optimize it? How do you go about it? I think one of the reasons
1: why I clicked so well with investors in this climate is because I my core, if I could pick one skill or one area that I've had a ton of experience in and that has ba- built an incredibly unique foundation is on corporate finance and financial management oh you got it out there (laughs) yeah so i mean i used to i used to to basically manage MA, right for 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 avm at the time i was a director in the team so for me it's always been natural and i think about things in a structured manner so even as i was approaching the conversations i was coming in with all of this detail right all of this you know, very detailed data rooms, very detailed financials. You know, very. I'm basically the CFO of the company as well. Sure. sure. So that has opened a lot of doors. Um, mm-hmm. And then you marry that with the fact that I come from a school of what we call zero-based budgeting, which is a hallmark. Bringing uh, mm-hmm. this at Three G Capital okay. which is this practice of just being so brutal with expense management. And I think that that gave investors a huge amount of comfort. So for me personally, it it really was a tailwind. After that. It was stressful. Don't get me wrong,
0: but I think I would have treated it the same way, even if it was good times. Sure. No, I mean, yeah, for for you, I think it's, it's a very very different story because I believe it comes naturally to you. Mm. It comes very naturally to you. Uh, I mean, the governance uh, or uh, or overall management, because that's how you're structured. But I I mean I I'm speaking to a lot of early stage founders, especially first time founders. Mm. They are like all super lost yeah uh, because they have never done this in the past plus things are moving at such fast pace where you're like signing agreements uh collecting capital uh, you really don't know and I mean you wait for it you're like okay I'm gonna put a structure to it let me come to a certain scale right because even putting things to a structure is a cost yeah for sure right? And that has
1: a psychological toll on on a lot of folks I agree um so as a founder as I said for perhaps I have a little bit of a inclination towards that but it definitely takes a toll on my team sure i have to build the uh, structures i have to be i have to be in some ways corporate like in some of the ways that I manage, yeah. manage things and be more like hey wait a second we're a startup right he <laughs> said yeah but so so there are, again, unintended consequences even within the sure. that we run basket. Sure. But when I look at my peers, when I look at folks in the market today, 100%. And I've noticed, and I, I don't want to make this an absolute uh, kind of statement because mm-hmm. I don't have enough data points or there aren't enough data points for me to be able to say that it's for a fact definitively this. But I want to put it out there that I do believe that it has a stifling uh, effect on innovation
0: okay okay
1: for the simple reason that the types of startups and the types of decisions that we're making as founders today are coming from the perspective of restraint and are coming from the perspective of we need to resource manage so carefully to show specific traction numbers data points, to cetera. there is this whole power law concept this whole you know let's let's think completely blue sky which you know a couple of generational startups are 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 put into that box. Not everyone and not every startup needs to be. correct. It's much safer to be a startup being built in the time that we're building because correct. of it's Sure, it's harder to come money. I completely agree on this one. Yeah. But the, the, it's a much tighter shell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's more difficult to create that generational kind of thing that is like, and, you know, the thing just takes a life form of its own.
0: Right.
1: And I, I, I don't know yet how it's going to play out. I think the startups in our batch are going to be very good investments for the VCs. But the portfolio asymmetry that we used to see before where one startup pays the entire fund back. Correct. I think that that
0: dynamic will change for our back. Correct, correct, correct. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, I'm a firm believer of the fact that if if someone can build a, a sizable venture during this, this uh, time frame of, two, two and a half, three years within this time frame, I think it's going to be an absolute success because it's going to come from a point of restraint. It's going to come from a point of discipline. It's going to come from a point of sacrifice. A lot of it. So, no, I absolutely agree. Let's talk about, let's talk about uh, you being a bully in Indonesia, building for not building not for Jakarta building not for a let's say a Bali or a Bando but for the real Indonesia which is out there in tier 2 tier 3 cities how is that
1: going? yeah it's uh, it's a question I get asked most often yeah I'm sure uh, look uh, part of my character is I have always put myself in the deepest, most exposed situations I can to get cultural context, to yeah. get local context, to really stick my face out there and get slapped hard. And I've done that with every aspect of my life, moving from Europe to China, you know, going on a limb from both quitting my job and you know leaving leaving the comfort of that corporate life to moving to Singapore to be on an EP, where in the middle of COVID, where if the probation hadn't worked out, I wouldn't have no way of staying in Asia mm-hmm. to then trying to, you know, build my own company. So I've always tried to stick my head out there in a super major way. You know, I visited like, I think 109 countries now. Uh, I, I just love that. And not, mm-hmm. not all the countries where, you know, some of them were in the middle of a war, right? Mm-hmm. So the reason why I'm saying that is the way that I approach my life experience in any scenarios or deep into the actual thing, not manage my headquarters, but hey, we have operations in Chile, Why don't we have operations in Seoul? I'm going to go there and I'm going to be with the team. I'm going to figure it out, I'm, even though I'm not, my Bahasa is not fantastic. I will be there. I will be in the trenches. They will feel like I'm with them. And in return, they will bless me with the ability to actually do something that is helpful to them and that we are working in sync to building, to build something useful. And I think that the key to success in building a business where you're building for such a diverse geography cultural landscape is not so much whether you are a local of that country but rather do you have the appetite to go down the rabbit hole and stick your head up there because even if you're from Jakarta I mean how how many people are willing to go out to the field on a, on a, on a weekly basis I mean my-
0: I 100% agree to you. My argument has been, uh, the, the argument which I've given to quite a few folks is that if it was only about you being a local or not, then all local startups would have been ahead. Mm. All local startups would have worked out. Right? And I'm not only talking about Indonesia, right? And I'm like talking about in general. You see a lot of migrant founders in, let's say, US right now. Right? Mm. Mm. And vice versa. There are a lot of American founders who are building in other countries, uh, but there is this thing which which comes with uh, which, which comes with being in a foreign land, uh, and especially when you're building for the roots. Yes. Right. Uh, and you are out there. You you're simply out there. You're just about the roots. Right. Uh, okay. Interesting. How big is the team now?
1: We are in the thirties, so I think we are about thirty-five
0: as of this week. What what are your hiring philosophies? What what are the three major check checkpoints which you have when you're hiring people?
1: As in, like what I want to hire for, or
0: no? Whenever you're hiring, like for example, if right. let's say let's say I am the one who's interviewing uh, for any role, what are the three attributes which which you generally look at when yeah, you're hiring the, folks? So,
1: I at 3G Capital, the, the spirit there, I don't know. If you know much about the companies, ABMF, Kraft Heinz, Burger King, et cetera. People literally wear the company's t shirt like to bed. I think they shower with it. I think yeah. they wear it on their, they're okay. deeply embedded in them. It's crazy. Okay. I mean, just the amount of culture and ownership. So, every time I interview somebody, one of the main things that I want to understand is not whether they are already the same cultural, because cultural alignment is basket, because that may take some time. It may take uh, an alignment of of worldviews and whatnot, but whether they have displayed that passion and have displayed the ability to be so aligned with the company before, if they have, and of course, there are a couple of parameters that are met that I I feel confident that I'm able to entice passion. And I'm able to drive this person beyond monetary, beyond, you know, your traditional, you know, offer a letter driven thing. So Mm. I like to tease out for passion. I like to tease out for that, that whatever's creating that ambition that goes far beyond just the, the monetary rewards. So culture, I'll test out extensively. Um, the, the other thing that for me is, is extremely important is, um, flexibility. Okay. So flexibility comes with, it's not just how experienced you are. Oh, let's say you've got 20 years experience. That's great. Mm-hmm. But are you comfortable enough with us abandoning this business model tomorrow and then just changing entirely? And then you also having to forget what you had to do for 20 years. Yeah. Because now it's not, no longer about your experience, but it's about, let's think about a new problem together. Sure. That That mental quickness and that flexibility to actually... Embark in that difficult thinking journey with me. So I will. I know it's silly, but I will sometimes throw in a few teasers where go down this complete rabbit hole with a person, asking like many different layers of why and how about this. So I like to engage brainstorming. Sure. So that's something that for me, if I can tease out, makes a makes a huge difference. Okay. Um. And I, I like to see the last one it's I think it's connected, right? But one of the things that I ch- I do, and I think I'm a little bit. I don't know if people it's already caught on but i like to book my interviews and in slightly inconvenient times
0: okay the, the the this is a old one there's a old one. Uh, okay uh, this but there's a it world it works it works it works it works and
1: what it tells you is it, it tells is this person willing to it does this matter enough to the person correct
0: this works especially for senior hires is what i've seen uh, in my experience for junior hires i mean to be honest uh most of the times they are willing to accommodate because they really really need that role, but for senior hires, it it actually does show uh, a lot of uh, a lot of inquisitiveness and com- uh, commitment uh, as well as the interest in in the role itself. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about the culture part. Uh, you are now a year old as a company. Yeah, five year old. Uh, so when you start, the culture is you, you, and probably you have co-founders. Uh, I so the story of basket is uh, when I was
1: in the process of hmm. transitioning uh, to not to use hmm. use that <laughs> the the other word uh, basically uh, my wife Yun Jung was the one who established the company who got the first few things rolling. Sure. Uh, so she was founder, first founder, I was not even an employee, employee at the Okay, time. okay. It's so just started out, um, then I was finally able to wrap up my prior job that I came on board. And for a while we ran the company as uh, co-founders, which for me has always been an amazing thing hmm. because Yunjong and I my wife, uh, we started out as colleagues, we got married,
0: then started a business together. And that's been, you know. Okay. So it's two of you. It's two of us. Okay, we'll we, we come to this one. Let me put let me, the culture part. Okay. This one's interesting. Uh, okay, I'm going to cut this for the trailer as well. <laughs> look out. Okay. So, uh, so the culture is you, uh, your co-founder, uh, a few early employees. So the way you behave is what, what sets out the tone of the culture, right? Of course, you can have an idea of it that I would want basket culture to be like this i i personally feel culture is the most abused term in startups uh massively abused uh which in in sense is used to used to literally abuse employees uh, at times uh deny them of basic rights as well uh but i mean that's a different conversation but how does at this early stage venture, go about establishing a culture?
1: So everything comes down to at least the first grade filter. Okay. So if you don't filter properly, you cannot you know you don't know what's coming into the little bus. Sure. Uh so I spend I still get involved in every interview. Everything. Perfect. Uh I no matter who oh. I need to speak to the first guy. Likewise, I likewise. And that's extremely important. Yeah. You need yeah. to get the tone. Yeah. What that does as well is that it gives you that's a separate benefit of it it makes you very good at appraising people especially as a bully as a poor founder right Mm. um but anyway so the the filtering getting the right people in is extremely important the second thing is and we see this you bring such a diverse set of people in that especially the slightly more senior hires they come with their own ability to influence some of their own biases so even if I tried to impose the whatever I believe is the right culture, if I was doing that purely from the perspective of a top-down, I would be being intellectually dishonest with how a company's culture is actually formed. If I tried to say here are our five values, everybody, please shove it down your throats. I mean, come on. Yeah. Nobody would want to work at the company, first of all, and second of all, then that's not really culture. It was, it's a set of guidelines so that I can... Career. push and pull employees in different Good. ways. Good. So, and to, to be honest, we're still in that phase where I've explained my vision. I've explained what I believe are the right ways and how we should be doing. But it's incredible to see how a couple of the leadership teams, they are helping to influence the culture in in their own way. Hmm. And I, I wouldn't say that our culture is still fully formed yet. I would say we are in taking baby steps towards bringing this amalgamation of what the co-founders plus some of the early leaders, especially the ones who have been with us since the beginning, who are sure. able to break. So I guess the, to summarize it is, I don't think it would be right to say this is our startup's
0: culture in the first year. Thank you. Thank you for saying this. Because, I mean, this This is exactly my contention that you cannot, def- the culture cannot be defined in the first, not even first year, I would say first few years. It takes time. Hence it's culture, right? Because it has evolved over a period of time and it is unique. It is unique to your own startup. Right? And it is not set in stone. It might evolve. It might evolve. evolve for better, of course. Sure. Hopefully, uh, evolve for better. Okay, let's come to the uh, interesting piece. How's it working with your wife? Uh, it's, for me, it's amazing. Okay. Uh, as
1: I was mentioning before, we were colleagues before we got married. Sure. So we always came from this perspective of, understanding boundaries, knowing what, how to separate the the professional and then the personal. Mm -hmm. Um, And my character, my, my most market, most important characteristic I would say is that I go all in into everything that I do, especially the thing that I'm most driven about. Today happens to be the startup, at least intellectually, for
0: sure. Intellectual stimulation. What do you think, sorry, what do you think is her main characteristic uh, sorry what do you think your main characteristic is that you go all in sure. what is her her main characteristic
1: Yes. Yeah, so she is a little bit different quite different from me in terms of uh, how she she is as a she is she's more like a support system okay so for us the way that our interactions uh, started is I've always been telling her hey I really like this thing I really want to do and she has always provided support she's always said we should do it. This will be great. Let's go. So she's always been a catalyst. To be honest, I don't think I would have been able to ever get this off the ground if she hadn't catalyzed me. So she's a support system, and I'm the the freight train, right? Just like driving, and that is a very important thing because sure we are enthralled and interested in the same things, so we put have a lot to talk about all the time. Sure, uh, beyond all the personal stuff. Sure. She understands my life. I understand her life mm. when building something together. Mm. Um. And we don't have kind of competing, conflictual roles or responsibilities. She takes care of HR and a lot of the culture building, internal
0: building, etc. And I don't have culture building. So where did you like? But- uh, no, 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 I absolutely love culture building. I love culture building. I, do, I'm not comfortable with someone saying that this is my culture. Sure. It is not your culture today. First year, you cannot have a culture. No, I'm sorry, just but,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and I do the other things. I do the fundraising. I do the the, the, the strategizing on the commercial side. Sure. Uh, I do the financial side. So different skill sets, complementary personalities. And
0: we are, I get to spend a lot of time with her. And I love that. No, It all sounds very lovely to me. How did it sound to the venture capitals? I don't care. You don't care, but did they? Then I don't want to work. Did they care? I mean, did you have these rough conversations with some? It happened. You did, it, right? It happened. So,
1: so look, there have been not direct feedback. So what I find is that people always, in your face, will say, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And We back, we back, uh, you know, husband, wife, daughter. yeah. What they don't tell you is that. that like, oh, crap, Like that was a complete blow up. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: what, what I do hear through... You know, others. this is more like the sustainability concept which keeps going God. We we are all for sustainability and then you see the portfolio, there's no one out there that sustainability. That's exactly it, right? Yeah, no, but but I mean okay, let's let's make it some let's make it fun. Tell me tell me about the most weird conversation which you've had with a venture capital without taking name on this part. On this part. Uh-huh. Which in hindsight is funny to you, let's say, for example. Oh, okay. Yeah, so so I was talking to uh,
1: to an investor, and you know, he was a, I could tell that he was impressed. He was like, "Oh, he was really engaging and everything." Hmm. Um, I already had some some report with the investor, so I think maybe they weren't hundred percent sure how exactly they were they were very open. So it was like a back and forth. Hmm. So once we touched on this point. It's almost like I saw this person's facial expressions completely change. And then that person went into a rent on, and he was basically reminiscing on this recent board meeting that he had, where it was just a complete disaster between husband and wife. Literally, I had a 45 minute call and the 30 minutes of the call was basically talking about the fallout of that company and the fallout of what happened there mm-hmm.
0: and then I was just like, was like he's hinting he's hinting you
1: I was just like oh, thank you for the feedback <laughs> <laughs> I, I get you I get you I got <laughs> the point I got the point uh, hmm. so for me that that was hilarious but it also gave me a very kind of you know eh, eh, unconventional insight into how the market might see it
0: sure I mean uh, it is stupid to some extent but at the same time I believe. They want to be very careful with their bets. Uh, sure. So I would, I would, I would, just give it, give, give some bit of a leave it out there. But I think it's all right, man. I mean, but there have been multiple businesses which have been look at Microsoft. I mean, B- Melinda wasn't really the the co-founder co-founder, but she's absolutely the one who's who's heavily responsible for what Microsoft does today. They have so many absolutely. Why combiners. yeah, I, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Look, but. Uh,
1: Unfiltered opinion on the matter, yeah, um, and I, I don't mind sharing. I think would a married couple, would having a married couple managing a company increase the likelihood of one of the co-founders exiting the company? A 100%. Ah, uh, 100%. I have zeroed out about that. Not just because of fallout. Sure, fallout is something that could happen, but in some cases, at least I believe in my case. Actually this is something that brings us even closer. Yeah. So the fallout is not what I would be worried about. Um but I do think that startup people also want to have families. Mm. Startup people wanna have babies. Absolutely. You know, sometimes having both all eggs in a single basket doesn't work for true, true, true. So so I do believe that there is a point there and I do understand why some investors, even though they have a roundabout way of feeling about this, and the 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 visible layer is not what was actually happening in the background. I, I do think that there is a point. Did anyone suggest you to have add one more co-founder? We actually had a, a local co-founder at the very beginning, okay. uh, but it only lasted a few months. Okay. Uh, we were in the experimentation phase, and
0: could do do VCs push you to have one more founder? Not anymore. Not anymore.
1: Not anymore. Now it's kind of like all right. Just, you, got, you got revenue, bro. That's you got, got revenue. You. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, look, in our founding team, uh, I had a very honest and a very upfront conversation with your and John, and we actually came to the decision that because we also want to have a family eventually, hmm. we consolidated the uh, co-foundership under me. I think our time horizon for having a family is two years or so. Sure. And we came to that agreement in peace. The investors were very supportive. There
0: was no noise. And now here we are. Beautiful. 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 I really, really, really appreciate uh, your honesty throughout this chat. Now, let's do this uh, this final bit. Uh, so, we have, uh, we have a segment in the show, which is basically a elevator pitch. Right? So, you've got like 60 seconds uh, to pitch me a basket, although I don't have any money. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, You get blessings and goodwill so That's good and, and a trailer There we go And a trailer So uh, yeah, here, here we are on the pitch Okay So what if
1: I told you that more than Or the equivalent of more than 50% of Indonesia's GDP In terms of data, in terms of flow of products Is completely offline today Meaning that there is no way you can touch that data. There's no way you can monetize that data. There's no way you can use it for productive use. That's the current situation with Indonesia's supply chains. Anywhere from two to $500 billion is actually locked up in various supply chains that are powered by intermediaries that are today operating offline. They don't have a partner to support them. They don't have systems yet. They're so crucial to Indonesia's economy, to manufacturers. To basically the entire industrial services uh, logistics industry so if I told you that there is a way to bring these to bring these intermediaries onto a platform bring inventory disability, bring data in a way that we can power that economic activity that we can make and crystallize value from it uh, actually I want to redo
0: that one is that okay you can I don't like I don't like this one <laughs> I, I mean I, I actually went somewhere in my mind while you were pitching so yeah, I think it's, it's okay. okay. I wasn't. I
1: I actually didn't think through this one very much. Let me let me let me think about that for a second. No no. Is way. it okay if I take? Of course you can. Crack. You can you can. You lost
0: me at crystallized. Yeah, I was. I actually didn't think this one through. Uh, no no. Look, this is that's that's the whole point, right? Because I mean, if you ask me, uh, to put it out, it actually I actually go on a rant. Yeah. Myself. Although I've been doing this as a thing, Sure. This is probably the 11th podcast which we are recording. But even I go on a rant. Uh, so it's it's completely alright. Just put in a structure. You got sure. 60, minutes, 60 seconds. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Let me just think through the structure sure. and then I'll deliver it. I hadn't... I
1: structured thoughts. So... Should it be kind of like capital or like like I would for a VC or?
0: Yeah, it's it's for a VC. It's for a VC. You you bumped into some. You bumped into a VC. Oh.
1: Uh, in an elevator. Oh, I see. It's an elevator pitch. Sixty seconds elevator. Okay, understood. Yeah. Understood. Okay.
0: Or you want to completely chop off the segment? We can do that. I think it's good. I think it's
1: good. It's just that I'm trying to structure it way. Anyway. Sure, sure. I always always go on rants as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I believe most founders have this problem, including me. Because we, we marinate and think so much about the business which we are building, there are so many thoughts and they're all convoluted at times and you just go on and on and on and on about it uh, without uh specifically when there is no agenda right so whenever we are asked to do it in a very concise very short manner because we haven't thought about it in a short way it's always been a large mission sure of Sorts uh, and it gets way tricky yeah it does it does uh
1: it's okay we can we can give it another go okay. um so basket is a offline commerce infrastructure enabler for indonesia meaning that we support offline middlemen folks that don't have access to technology pen and paper users who manage their products their services their warehouse in a fully manual way there are about 200,000, 200,000 of these intermediaries across indonesia powering more than 200 billion dollars worth of flows on a yearly basis now these intermediaries are extremely crucial to the Indonesian economy God I actually really hate this <laughs> I really
0: hate this one I really hate this one <laughs> we I'm not editing a single bit of this we going to keep this I hate it I hate it <laughs> we're gonna keep this I uh, nope, no wise, no he's no, no 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 let's uh, no uh, let's let's uh, let's end this on one note which which I want from your side. Uh, there are a lot of founders right now who are struggling who are struggling be it with their fundraise uh, or who are struggling with finding their PMF uh, who are struggling because their pre-seed investors are pulling out now they don't want to participate further Uh, what would you want to tell them? Uh, your thoughts I would say
1: the the dominant characteristic of the founder of this generation this time will be resilience um, and to be honest that's what people will say about us when mm. all the smoke um, you know, comes down. The resilient founder of this time will have been the successful founder. So there's no goal getting through this without just having to be an absolute cold-hearted killer with resilience in a, in a way that I don't think founders have had to face over the course of the past few years. So first of all is, you know, don't, don't really, don't give up. People say that all the time. Sure. But even the time that you're spending today, fundraising, the rejections and whatnot, it's not wasted time. Sure. It is really, really not wasted time. There is data to be gathered. There are learnings. And it's amazing to see what a relationship that is building an investor conversation does for you six months down the line. When a few parameters change within the business. So again, I would continue to engage, you know, stick your head out there. Eventually things, things will come. With regards to PMF and traction and what is required to do to fundraise these days. I think that it's becoming clearer and clearer what the blueprint is for those expectations, you know, so play the game. If playing the game is what is required to get things off the ground for now.
0: I think it was always required playing the game, but the, it just that the rules of the game have changed. That's what I'm saying. So if we know the rules of the game now, then play the rules of that game.
1: Mm. Because if, you know, I started out a little bit as a purist and I was like, no, I don't know, I'm gonna think about it this way, this way, this way, right? But you're getting very direct feedback. If that feedback has been given to you and what is required is visible, mm. you know, it doesn't hurt to actually do a little bit of that so that you can cross that initial chasm, that initial hurdle. Sure. So, so what I would say is, you know, don't spend as much time being a purist like I was. You know, try, try a little bit to play ball with the investors that are interested, even if it means that you will need to adjust how you think about your pitches, how even you think about displaying metrics or even getting some of those metrics generated for yeah. the first place. Good ones,
0: good ones. Thank you so much, Uh Good, good, good chatting. Uh, apart from the bloopers which I have got, oh, yeah. for uh, your one minute pitch, I think it was it was it was pretty flawless. Uh, great insights. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I rubbed you off in the beginning with my knowledge of supply chain, but I believe uh, even now I am on a clear idea of what you are doing and more importantly why you are doing. Uh, it's it's very clear. I believe for our audience also, it's very clear of uh, of what what basket intends to achieve. Uh, I wish you and the team lots of luck. I'm sure you guys are gonna do amazing. Uh, thanks so much for joining. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye.